particularly because it's coming up to Easter weekend. Uh, we spoke this morning about the arrest of Christ in the garden. And tonight, as I said, uh, we are going to look at his trial. And really, when you come to something like this, you should take your shoes off your feet because this is holy ground. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, more important than the cross and what Christ has done for us. That is absolutely central to everything we are and everything we do. Let us never, ever lose the vision of the cross. Come with me, please, to John chapter 18. And we'll read some verses together just in a moment. Someone has calculated that Matthew, Mark, and Luke dedicated about one-third of their Gospels to the events around the cross, and that John dedicated about one-half of his Gospel uh, to those events as well. So it's something that is primary, preeminent even, in the Gospels. Graham Scroggie, that great old preacher of old, said his incarnation made his death possible. His perfect life made it powerful. But it is the death, and neither the incarnation nor the life, on which the emphasis is laid in the New Testament. Now tonight we are going to be mentioning uh, some characters that would be involved in, in Christ's trial. Uh, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, Annas, and so forth. And before we get into the meat of what I want to say, I think it would be good if I would just give you a few moments uh, speaking about these characters. And it will particularly help you, I think, those of you who come Saturday night uh, to see the Passion of the Christ, uh, to get who the figures are, who the main players are uh, regarding this uh, trial and crucifixion. Pontius Pilate had a key part in all that was happening in the trial and death of Christ that led to such infamy. And his name has become a byword uh, for Cardus and for buck passing. History records that Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor or procurator of the southern part of Palestine from A.D. 26 to 36 served uh, 10 years in that position. Usually they would only serve one and a half to three years, so his was a long tenure. I remember that Palestine at this time was conquered by the Romans, and Palestine had just become another imperial province of Rome. And uh, Pilate was under the jurisdiction of the legate of Syria, and ultimately, of course, to the emperor himself, in Rome, he had the responsibility of maintaining law and order, uh, both civilly and uh, all the rest of it, uh, criminal law, military jurisdiction, all this was his to administer. As long as the people paid their taxes, as long as there was no uprisings, as long as they kept the law, kept their noses clean, then Rome really would let whatever nation they had conquered a certain amount of freedom. And particularly, they would usually allow them to continue with their uh, particular uh, religions. 
Of course, the one thing that uh, uh, they were not allowed to do, they had no uh, power to execute. Uh, that was solely in the hands, uh, particularly this province of Palestine, solely in the hands of Pilate himself. He alone had the power of the sword. And, uh, However, having said that, uh, by and large, they just let the Jews get on with things. And, uh, but the Jews were a troublesome people to Rome. Uh, there was all kinds of insurrectionists, terrorists, all kinds of rebels against Rome. And so it was a difficult place to be. And uh, of course, the uh, religious Jews were a crafty lot. And the Sanhedrin in particular, now the Sanhedrin, we'll see in a moment because that's one of the trials Jesus was before, uh, it was 71 men. And uh, they would make up the leadership of priesthood uh, of the priests who would be over the religious uh, doings uh, within the nation. And then, of course, there'd be elders who would be over the civil side of things. And then, uh, to back all of that up, there would be the scribes. The scribes were the ones who absolutely knew the law back to front and the very minutiae of the law. And they were very clever people, but highly religious. And so, this Sanhedrin... Uh, as we know by now, were very, very much against Jesus Christ. They absolutely hated him. Now, we know that not all of the Sanhedrin was like that. We know at least two of them, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who didn't want to take part in any of these trials. Uh, but for the most part, it was the religious faction within the Sanhedrin that ran things in the country as far as the Jews were concerned, and uh, they were the ones particularly that was hard against uh, Christ. Now, Pilate himself was a very cruel, brutal man, been a soldier all of his life, feared by all, hated by many, and loved by very, very few indeed. However, he was also a very shrewd politician, and he was a pragmatist. And all he really cared about, truthfully, was himself and his position and his political position and uh, his own uh, particular lifestyle that he had grown up over these past 10 years in Palestine. That's the only thing that truly he cared about. The trouble with that was that this made him spineless and a card whenever it came to dealing with Christ at his trial because uh, he really didn't really want to face down uh, these Jews at this particular time. Now, one of the problems that... Uh, Pilate had, and one of the reasons why uh, he was a coward at Christ's funeral is because uh, the Jews especially uh, had the makings of him. And they really had him over a barrel by this time. What I mean by that? Well, the whole object of these procurators was to keep the peace. Uh, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And as long as they could keep the peace, it didn't really matter. Pay your taxes, keep the peace, everything's going to be fine. Rome won't bother you. As soon as you step out of line, as soon as there's any insurrection, they'll come down with an iron fist. But the trouble was that the Jews had complained about Pontius Pilate to Rome several times. He'd gotten on the wrong side of them, and they complained. And he was at the position where one more complaint there's going to be real trouble for him. And he knew that, and they knew that. For instance, Josephus, 
the Jewish historian records that Pilate was the only governor to remove his troops from Caesarea, which was the administrative seat, to Jerusalem. And his troops, bearing the graven images of Tiberius, the emperor, who was now worshipped as God, whenever they did that, it caused an uproar among the Jews. And uh, Pilate threatened actually to kill all of them. And the Jew says, well, if you kill us, you're going to have to kill the whole nation. And so he backed down. And then he started to place his shoes in the palace with the images of the Roman gods. And the Jews regarded these as graven images. And so again, they reported this to Tiberius, and Pilate actually had to remove them. Then Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct from outside the city into the city of Jerusalem, but he wanted to do it with temple taxes, which was the religious tax. And again, the Jews rioted over this, and he came down with a very heavy and brutal hand, used excessive force. And then the Bible states, worst of all, in Luke 13, that Pilate slew Galileans and mingled their blood with the temple sacrifices. So he actually slew Galileans in the temple as they were making their sacrifices. Now you can imagine, this was a ghastly, horrible thing to do. And it absolutely inflamed the religious Jews. And so again, they would complain to Rome and Rome didn't want any insurrections. They didn't want any trouble. And so you can see how Pilate here now is in a position where the Sanhedrin knew uh, that he was going to have to play ball because if he didn't, then he was going to be in deep, deep trouble with Rome. Now, apart from the religious trials that Jesus faced, and there was two of those, we'll look at them in a moment, he also faced three Roman trials. Pilate tried him twice, and in between those times, he faced uh, Herod as well. And even Pilate and Herod both knew that Jesus was an innocent man. In fact, both of them declared his innocence. But nevertheless, cruel and barbaric beatings were dished out to Jesus, in spite of him being completely innocent. And so political expediency, religious hatred, spineless leader, all conspired together to put Christ on the cross. Many Christians around the world today are facing similar injustices and persecutions because of political expediency and religious hatred and spineless, gutless leaders. Now Herod, the trial before Herod, we'll read about this in a moment. Herod was a, an Idomenian. And that means that he was of the lineage of Esau. Remember Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Esau was a profane man, the Bible says. He was an irreligious man. He had really no interest at all in spiritual things. and he, That's why he sold his birthright so easily for a dish of porridge or pottage. Because he really didn't care about the spiritual content of the birthright. And so here is one of his descendants, and he too is an unspiritual man. Cares nothing for true spirituality. But he's in a position of power. He's a puppet king of Rome. He's in a position of power. Now, this particular Herod is Herod Antipas. Some calls him Antipas. Anti means against, and pass means all or everyone. Imagine having a name where you're against all and against everyone. 
And uh, so he's a very selfish, brutal man. Uh, you remember that his father, Herod the Great, was the one who murdered all the little children uh, from two years and under in order to try to wipe out the baby Jesus. And so he too was a bloody and barbaric man. And as well as these two Herods, uh, then there is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great and the son of Herod Antipas. And this was the Herod who had murdered James with the sword and had determined to take also uh, Peter. But then you remember how Peter was divinely rescued by an angel from the prison. This Herod Agrippa I, he was the one who made a, such a powerful speech that the people acclaimed him as a god. And because he didn't give God the glory, he was smitten by worms, the Bible says, and he died a horrible death. The fourth Herod that was mentioned in the Bible is Herod Agrippa II, the son of Herod Agrippa. And he is simply known just as Agrippa. And this was Paul who had his defense before him. This is the one, you remember, who said to Paul, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. And so this particular Herod we're going to talk about tonight that Jesus stood trial before was Antipas. He was ruler over two provinces, Galilee, which Jesus, where Jesus came from, and Perea. His father, Herod the Great, had left his provinces to his sons, and that's why they were sometimes called tetriarchs, which means one-fourth. Archelaus was one of those sons. He was given Judah to govern. This was the Herod that Joseph and Mary feared whenever they came back from Egypt and caused it to go with a young child to live in Nazareth. Now, there came a time when Rome appointed procurators instead, and Pilate was the fifth procurator in the time of Jesus. And even though Herod was still ruling as a puppet king, but we see that really there was a power base under Pilate. He was the one who was accountable ultimately to Rome. He was the one with the power of the sword. And so this Herod Antipas, he was the one you remember that had the trouble with John the Baptist. As well as being a brutal man, he was a very lustful man. And on a visit to Rome, visiting his brother, he lusted after his brother's wife, Herodias. Herodias was an ambitious woman and saw she would be more politically better off with Antipas. So she ditched her husband. He ditched his first wife. They both got together. He got together with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist faced him on that. John the Baptist went to him and faced him on that. And even though he was afraid of John the Baptist, there was a fear about John the Baptist, but his wife absolutely despised him. You remember how he held this great banquet and had all the dignitaries in there? And he got Herodias' daughter to dance this very provocative and lewd dance. And they're all drunken. And after she danced, he was so taken by this. He said to this young woman, he says, what would you like? I'll give you anything you ask. And that was all Herodias needed to hear. 
And she says, ask him for the head of John the Baptist. And he gave her the head of John the Baptist. So this is the kind of people we're dealing with here. Ruthless, barbaric, ungodly, wicked. And we'll see their wickedness being played out here as now we go into the Scriptures. So in John chapter 18, remember this morning we talked about the arrest of Jesus, how they came in, they led him away. And in verse 12 of John 18 says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas was the previous high priest. And even though he was no longer the high priest in office, but yet because of his age, his maturity, and because he was a previous high priest, he had great sway. And he had fabulous wealth. And he had a lot of power. And even though Caiaphas was the actual high priest, but Annas was the one behind the scenes who still wielded great influence. And I suppose that's why they took him to him first before they took him to the present incumbent who was Caiaphas. And so they took him there. And then in verse 19... The high priest then asked Jesus, so this is Annas speaking, the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Now, when it says he struck Jesus with the palm of the hand, in the original it means that he slapped him violently. He slapped him violently right on the face. And he had absolutely no right to do that. Jesus hadn't said anything wrong. But such was the hatred and the animosity. And because Jesus now is in a position where he's standing before them with all of the soldiers around, what a card this man was to strike Jesus in this way. And Jesus answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I remember that Jesus was in the garden late at night praying when he got arrested when Judas came with the cohort with that three to six hundred soldiers plus all the temple guards. And they treated him roughly and led him away. And now here he's having this trial. It's a quick trial. It's an examination. But officially, he's got to go before Caiaphas. So Annas sends him to Caiaphas. In Matthew chapter 26, now I'm going to be bouncing about a little bit tonight. 
you don't have to necessarily follow me all the time. You can if you so desire. But in Matthew chapter 26, here is the uh, standing before Caiaphas. Verse 57 of Matthew 26. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And so this must have been uh, uh, well prepared, well ready. They knew he was being arrested. They got together waiting for the trial. Remember, this is very late at night, coming into the early hours of the morning now. And so those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? What brutal cards they were. They spat in his face. Not just one or two of them, but probably dozens of them. No greater insult than spitting in somebody's face that showed disdain, bitterness, hatred, ugliness. And he stood there as they spat in his face and then they smote him and struck him, slapped him about mocked him, prophesy unto us. Who is the one who struck you? And then chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. I turn to John 18 again. Verse 28. 
And they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. Uh, this is where Pilate was. The Praetorium was like a great courtyard outside his residence. And it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they may eat the Passover. What a bunch of hypocrites they were. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Now Pilate despised these people. And he really didn't want to get involved in their religious arguments and squabbles. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That was true. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he should die. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men. Jesus actually told them one day they were out walking that they would go to Jerusalem and he would be delivered up to the Jews and the Gentiles and that he would be crucified. So scripture, prophecy is being fulfilled here. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Now, now Jesus wasn't being cheeky here. He was asking a very pointed question. He said, You're asking me, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, are you asking me because that's what you think? Or is that what you've heard? I want to know what you think about me. Remember Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Very, very important to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Your eternal future depends on the correct answer. So Jesus said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Did others tell this concerning me? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Huh. Am I a Jew? How do you expect me to know? In other words, he's saying, am I a Jew? I don't know anything about you people, really. Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, What? is truth. What is truth? He 
here he was standing before the very personification of truth, the embodiment of truth, the one who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And here's this pagan man says, what is truth? Do we not hear this today? Do we not hear this today? What is truth? What's right? What's wrong? What's real? What's unreal? There are no absolute truths, we're told today. Things hasn't changed very much, have they? Pilate said to him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no fault in him at all. It wasn't just because he didn't want anything to do with this, and he didn't really, but he actually could find no fault in him. And that's important. Because again and again and again, that theme comes through. I find no fault in this man. Now, before we go on a little bit further, this is why you've got to read through the Gospels to get it pieced together. It'd be lovely if it was all together in one page, but it isn't. Each Gospel writer wrote different parts of the trials. At this point, well, let me show you what happens. In Luke chapter 23, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which he didn't. In fact, he says, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. And perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time, who had come up for the feast, for the Passover. Ah, here's a get-out clause, he's thinking. This is going to get me off the hook. He's a Galilean. Herod, that's his province. And if this man's been accused of a crime, then I can legally, rightfully send him back to his province to be tried there. So, he sent him to Herod, who was also Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Can you believe it? This is the man who had murdered John the Baptist. And when he hears that there's an opportunity to meet Jesus, he is exceedingly glad. You'd think he'd be scared. 
But he's glad because he wants Jesus to perform for him. It shows you how deluded and wicked this man was. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. As soon as he realized that Jesus wasn't going to play ball with him, he wasn't even going to speak to him, he certainly wasn't going to do any miracle for him, then he lost interest. And then the true heart of this man came to the fore. He's not glad anymore. Now he's angry. And he turns brittle. Then Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Remember those ones, those Galileans Pilate slew in the temple? You can be sure Herod didn't like that because they were his people. So there was enmity, there was bad blood between them probably because of that. But suddenly now they're great friends. <laughs> they have a common cause, Jesus. And so... Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. Neither did Herod, he said. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Even though Jesus was completely innocent, and even though Herod knew he was innocent, but that didn't stop him mocking him and slandering him and trying to make a fool of him. And there's people like that today. Even though they know that Christ was absolutely pure and innocent, a righteous man, but yet they try to mock him. They use his name as a swear word to blaspheme him. Back to John. Sorry, go back to Luke. Let us see. John 23. Go back to John. Chapter 18 again. Just trying to keep this in sync. In verse 38 of John 18, Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in this man. And so... He's sent back from Herod. He's being tried again. On this occasion, he says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
They all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. A robber. In Luke 23, 19, you don't need to turn to it, it tells us that Barabbas was a murderer, a man who committed rebellion against Rome, which was punishable by death. And he was in prison probably to die. He had been number one prisoner. And so Pilate, wishing to get out of this trial, finding no fault with Jesus, He's already played the card to Herod. It didn't work. Now he has another card to play. The Barabbas card. Maybe this will work. And so he picks out, now it was true that the day of the time of the Passover, it was true that Rome was a kind of a sop to the Jews, that they would release a prisoner of their choice. They got to choose. But in this case, he chooses. And he gives them, he makes the choices for them. And he says, I'll give you two choices. You can either release Barabbas or you can release Jesus. Now, any fair-minded person surely would think, surely they would want Jesus released. Surely they wouldn't want Barabbas released. But he didn't know their hearts because these were wicked men and they smelt blood and they wanted Jesus dead. And anyway, Barabbas had committed insurrection against the Romans. And in a way, they'd be secretly pleased about that because they hated the Romans. And so this was destined to fail. And so Pilate now is in a pickle, as we would say. What is he going to do? Well, what he should do and what he legally should do, and what he rightfully should do, is release Jesus. Even if they wanted Barabbas released, Jesus is an innocent man, and they should release him. But he knows what they're doing now, and he's on the hook. Because the Jews now are, and I haven't time to read all of these scriptures tonight, but the Jews now are saying that Jesus is making himself out to be a king. So now they have moved it from the religious accusations to the political accusations. They saw the religious accusations didn't work. Pilate didn't care whether he made himself the son of God or not. He really could care less about that. That was religious stuff. But when it came into the political realm, that's his realm. Now his knack is on the block. Because if he releases Jesus, whom they say has made himself a king, and they says, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar's our king. So now he's in trouble. Now he's in trouble. If he releases Jesus, the word's going to go back to Rome that he released a man who's usurping Caesar's authority. And that's his job on the line, if not his life on the line. So what is he going to do? He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows he's pure man. He knows he's a holy man. He's a righteous man. Will he stand for him? 
Or will he stand for himself? Will he stand up for Jesus in the crowd? Or will he save his own neck and compromise? And the truth is, he stood up for himself. And you know, there's a great lesson in this for all of us. Because there may be some time in our life when we'll be forced to make a stand for Jesus or for ourselves. Will we stand for righteousness and holiness and for Christ? Or if it gets too hot, will we compromise and back off and stand for ourselves? Sadly, this man stood for himself, didn't he? And so now he's caught between a rock and a hard place. What is he going to do? Well, listen to what happens. So Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Then Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Listen to me tonight. If we read all of the passages, you'd see that Four times, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Even Herod said, I find no fault in this man. Even Judas, who betrayed him, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. The thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing amiss. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this just man. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible is clearly telling us that Jesus was entirely and completely pure and holy and innocent. Even the world admitted it, and yet they crucified him. Even Peter denied that he ever knew him. And Judas, who betrayed him, says he was an innocent man. <laughs> when they all forsook him and fled, Pilate says he's an innocent man. When the woman looked from afar off, Pilate's pagan wife said, I have nothing to do with this just man. I've had a dream tonight. But still they crucified him. And so Pilate scourges him. We'll talk about scourging in a moment. And his soldiers mock him. And then he brings him out of the praetorium and shows him to the Jews, hoping maybe at last, surely, when they see the state he's in, they'll have some mercy. Behold, I am bringing him out to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. 
And Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Famous statement. Behold the man. Hoping, just maybe, that what they're looking at, that something in their hearts will change. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now he knew they didn't have the power, legalities to do that. He's so disgusted with them. Can't believe what he's hearing and seeing. The Jews answered, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, That's a strange question. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, he knew where he was from geographically because he knew he was from Galilee. That's why he sent him back there. But when they said he's made himself to be the Son of God, they didn't care about their religious stuff. But there was something about this statement. You see, remember these are pagans. Remember all those Greek myth stories that they all grew up with? Because a lot of the Greek myths believed that the gods, the sons of the gods, would come down to earth and look like mortal men. And if you harmed them, the gods would be after you. So he calls Jesus back in again. He says, where are you from? <laughs> a little bit of doubt going on here now. He's remembering his wife's vision and dream. Have nothing to do with this just man. <laughs> Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Do you not realize who I am? Do you not realize the authority and the power I've got over you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you is a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's desperate now. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The priest said, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered them, him to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and he led him away. 
Pilate scourged him. Pilate scourged him in the hope, perhaps, that they would have pity. Of course, they begged for his blood instead. But scourging always came before crucifixion. It's part of the punishment. Scourging was absolutely horrific. Horrific beyond belief. Many would die at the scourging. The sheer thought of it struck terror into the hearts of criminals. Scourge was a, a whip, small handle with throngs which would be about 18 to 24 inches, leather, embedded with bone or metal and glass. There would be a short post into the ground. They would strip the prisoner completely tie him to that post with his wrists to a metal hoop to make sure he couldn't get away. And then the Roman soldiers who were brutal, sometimes two of them would do it. They would take that whip and began to lash his back. And the whip would go not only his back, but his abdomen, his buttocks, his legs, his chest, his face. And it was so fierce and so hard that each time they did it, it would tear the flesh completely to the bone. In fact, many died at the scourging. Didn't get any further. And they would keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Sometimes a prisoner's eye would be gouged out and they would continue to do it until their backs were a bloody mess. Eusebius, a church historian, said that sometimes that the prisoner's bowels would be exposed, cut into their bowels. Sometimes their vital parts would be exposed. Sometimes their very spine would be exposed. That's how brutal it was. And that's what Pilate did to Jesus. An innocent man that he declared again and again was innocent. But he still did that. What an awful beating. Remember that prior to this, he was slapped in the face forcibly at the trial of Annas. He was mocked cruelly with Herod's men and blasphemed, spat upon. And now these ones are scourging him and putting that crown of thorns, large like two-inch thorns and pressing it down on his head. And mocking him, giving him a reed like a rod, which would be a hard stick. 
and taking it off him and beating him over the head with it again and again. So by the time that Pilate brought him out, he must have looked absolutely awful. Isaiah said his visage, his form was so marred more than any man. What a brutal beating he took. And all of that was before the cross. All of that was before the cross. But then he, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the center. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews, when they read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, He said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garment and made four parts, each soldier apart. Those who were the executioners, Rome gave them the right to the spoils, whatever clothes the prisoner wore, they could have. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. But listen, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garment among them, and for my clothing they did cast lots. In the Psalms, in Isaiah, in various places, the psalmist says, I gave my back to the smiters. That was a prophetic statement regarding Christ. He gave his back to the smiters. And so we're almost finished. They took him to crucify him. Never in the history of man was a more cruel devised way of killing someone than crucifixion. Phoenicians were the first to do it. The Romans had perfected it to a fine art. They had crucified thousands. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst criminals, usually those who had struck out against Rome. To make an example of them, it was done in a public place and before all. Crowds would be there. And because this was the time of the Passover, Jerusalem was filled to capacity. It was bursting at the seams with people from all over the then known world. And remember, Jesus was a household name. Can you imagine the many people must have went to that crucifixion where Jesus would be stripped, placed on a cross, Five-inch nails driven through his hands. His feet would be one on top of the other. A great big five-inch nail would be pushed right through his feet into the cross. That cross would be thudded into that hole in the ground. What a terrible, terrible pain and anguish he must have went through 
And it was devised that way because whenever the body sank, the pain that must have shot through the arms. In fact, historians say that oftentimes those who were crucified, that their limbs grew an extra nine inches because they were pulled out of their sockets. And when they tried to push up on their feet to breathe, the pain that must have shot up their legs. And so they would be push up and then they would go down and they'd push up and they'd go down. Remember his back now is like a plowed field. And he only do that so long, depending how strong you are. Sometimes it would last for three days until in the end you'd lose that much body fluid and blood. Dehydration would set in and a raging thirst would come upon you. Remember Jesus cried out on the cross, I thirst! And he gave him a drink and he took it. Do you know the woman that would come to the crucifixions because they had pity and people who were really suffering would come with gall which would be like a painkiller to mix it with wine to give to the prisoners that tended to dull the pain. You know, Jesus was offered that twice and he refused it. Before the cross and on the cross and he refused it. Said to the Peter, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He took the full pain and anguish of the cross for us. But in the end, the human body could take no more. And the fluids and the blood and the lungs would begin to fill up. And the breathing would become suffocating. Asphyxiation would be the thing that would kill them in the end. They couldn't breathe anymore. And oftentimes to speed up the process, the soldiers would break the legs of the prisoners so they couldn't get up to breathe. And they would die a horrible, horrible, painful death as if they were drowning. That's what Jesus went through. That's what he went through in the cross for us. And there's no pleasant or nice way to talk about it. That's what actually happened. You remember how the soldiers, because the Passover was coming, they didn't want those Jews, didn't want the bodies hanging up, so the soldier would come, break the legs. They broke the legs of the two on the left and right of them, came to Jesus, and behold, he was dead. Because once he had suffered and took all of the pain and all of the anguish, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. And he gave up the ghost. So when the soldiers came to him, just to make absolutely sure though, remember one took a spear and he lunged it into his side and it says, out came blood and water, showing us that the lungs and the heart had failed. It's gone. What a terrible, brutal, awful death. 
Now you know why Jesus in the garden sweated great drops of blood. He knew what he was going to go through. The mock trials, the blasphemy against him, the spitting, the slapping, the scourging, the beating, the lies, all of that. And he did it for us. Because that's what it took to pay the price for my sins. That's what it took. Nothing less than that was going to pay the price for my sins. Now you know why God hates sin. God hates it. Because that's what it did to his son. And the Father allowed it to happen so that the price would be fully paid for your sins and my sins tonight. As I said this morning, how can we not give our lives to such a one as Christ who did everything for us? We're going to pray. Right now, let's pray. Lord, we hardly know what to say. It is almost beyond our comprehension. And Lord, it is beyond our comprehension why you would do that for us. Why you would do it for a world that has rebelled against you, that has despised you, that has hated you. And yet, Lord, you gave your life for this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you tonight the bottom of our hearts for the supreme sacrifice you made. Our minds can scarcely take it in. But we thank you that you came and that you went to the cross. But we thank you, Lord, it didn't finish at the cross. We thank you for the mighty resurrection. Lord, we have looked at you tonight on the cross, but you're no longer on the cross, and you're no longer in the tomb. You're on the throne beside your Father. You've risen victorious over death and hell and sin. And Lord, we're eternally grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, that you paid that price, that you made that way for us tonight so that we might be saved, that we might be ready and fit for heaven because it's only through your sacrifice, because you are the only way, because you're the only one that could pay the price. We thank you, Lord, that you paid it in full and you gave it to us free of charge. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
So we bless you this night. We honor you and we give you all of the glory. Lord, as we come together this weekend coming, we will magnify your name. We will rejoice together over your goodness. We pray that those who come who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, that their hearts would be opened and touched. And Lord, that they would find you as Lord and Master. So we thank you for this, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit will bring conviction that Christ may be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.